A man walks into a confessional, takes a seat on his side of the booth. The priest slides the window open and says, I'm listening, my child. What is your confession? The man replies, forgive me, father, pastor, vicar, padre, priest, for I have synonymed. I'm sorry, that was the cleanest joke I could find on the internet about a priest. In our day and age, priests seem to have two primary functions. They're the butt of pretty crude jokes, or they're the headlines of pretty horrific scandals, or both. And by and large, they're becoming unimportant and periphery in society. Especially when you consider the past, the importance of a priest today has greatly diminished. Not to mention the actual work of a priest today is so radically different than a priest of, say, the first century. I'm an ordained priest. Some of you may not know that because I go by pastor, but I'm a priest and and my work involves preaching, administering the sacraments, caring for people. Sometimes I slap on a collar, throw on some robes, and make jokes that don't land. Uh, but preparing animal sacrifices, you know, upholding strict and detailed purity laws, this is not in my job description. Uh, we've been studying the book of Hebrews for the past six weeks, and today we hit a turning point in the letter, hence why the graphic has changed colors, which I think is pretty snazzy. Uh, the author... <laughs> is finally going to focus on something that he's mentioned a couple times in passing. Jesus is our great high priest. Now, what the author has in mind is vastly different than what we have in mind when we think of the word priest. And what we must remember is that he's writing to first century urban Christians, Christians who lived in a city, who when they hear the word priest, would think the same thing the author's thinking. They would have vivid images, actually, about what a priest does and what a priest is. And so why is the author bringing up this point about Jesus? Why must they consider Jesus as their great high priest? Now remember, they are facing mounting pressures in their society because of their faith. They're marginalized. They're losing status. Some are losing jobs. They're, they're facing the temptation to leave faith and Jesus behind altogether. But the author wants them to consider a better option. Instead of leaving, stay. Instead of drifting away, draw closer still. Because as our high priest, Jesus has become the source, the entry point into something profoundly better, a profoundly better way into the presence of God. Which means this, Jesus is not like our misperception of priests. He's not cut off from society or irrelevant or clueless about the realities we face. In fact, Jesus should not be on the periphery of society or unimportant, but at the very center of it, at the very center of our lives. But not just as a presence, but as our great high priest. So the question I want to ask this morning is this. Why should we attach ourselves to Jesus as our great high priest? Why should we attach ourselves to Jesus as our great high priest? If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews, which is toward the back of the Bible. If you don't own one, uh, take one of the gray Bibles of our church home with you. It's our gift to you, uh, and everything will also be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. The author starts by issuing a challenge. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. It could also be, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. If you asked any first century Jew, what is the most sacred place on earth? 
By and large, they would say the Holy of Holies. This was the guarded, protected, most sacred center of their temple. It was the place where God was thought to dwell most intimately, the place where heaven intersected with earth. And so for them, this was a place of sacredness. So sacred, in fact, that only a high priest could enter into that space and only offer after offering sacrifices for himself and detailed rituals of cleansing. And on top of that, he could only enter into this sacred place where heaven intersected with earth, where God was palpable. He could only enter in once a year. This is what they would think, the most sacred place. And yet the author starts off with a real zinger that Jesus has entered into an even more sacred place than this, that Jesus has passed through the heavens. You see, the, the priests of Israel, they ministered on earth. They dealt with earthly realities. They dealt with temples and animals and, and, and spaces. But Jesus transcends the whole system. He enters into the most sacred place of all, the very presence of God himself. What the author is trying to point out is that this is a different sort of priest altogether. This is a high priest like any high priest you've ever known. And because of this, because Jesus has passed through the heavens and makes way into the very presence of God, we should hold firmly to him. We should hold fast to him. We should attach ourselves to him because there's no one like him. When I was a kid, I had two things I was attached to, my bottle and my blankie. And they gave me my sense of safety and well-being. And they went everywhere with me. Uh, this is just some random kid off the internet I found. This is not me. No, I'm joking. That's me. But uh, <laughs> according to my mom, uh, they, were my, they might as well have been my appendages. And even if my bottle ran dry, she said she couldn't get it out of my mouth. Like I had this ironclad, you know, grip, cemented mouth around that bottle. I would not let it go, even if it was providing me no sustenance. And my blankie would get so dirty, but I wouldn't let it go that she'd have to sneak in at night to get the blankie from me and wash it. The author says we should have a cemented, ironclad grip on Jesus as our source of comfort, our security, our well-being. He's who we should run to in times of trouble or when we're in need of help and where we should go to discover our self-worth and our identity. Psychologists call this attachment. It's an enduring emotional bond that connects people across time and space. And a healthy attachment to someone else results in intimacy and caring and understanding. The author of Hebrews wants us to receive this intimacy, this caring, this compassionate understanding from Jesus, which is why he says, hold fast to him. He's stressing our deep psychological and spiritual and even physical need to have a healthy attachment to God. But the problem is that heaven is so otherworldly. Jesus, he's passed through the heavens. We can't see him. So why should the ancient Christians hold fast to someone they can't see, someone they can't touch? You know, at least earthly priests, that's tangible. Their ministry is observable. Why should we have a relentless grip on our faith in Jesus? A death grip. Why should we hold so tightly to him that our knuckles turn white when we can't even see him? We need to attach to Jesus because we live in a world of disorder, of hurt, of chaos, and of loss. If we don't hold on to him, if we don't draw near to him, we'll turn to something or somebody else. 
We'll turn to the here and now, what can be seen by the naked eye and experienced tactily in our bodies. But no matter what it is, whether you're attached to a healthy relationship or an unhealthy relationship, to food or to exercise, to distractions and entertainment, whatever it may be, it'll never be sustainable. Whoever and whatever you go to for security, to, you know, comfort, support, it can't last. The bottle runs dry. It's all temporary and limited in its ability to empathize with you and support you. And even when you have it, even when you have a healthy attachment, it's not always consistent. For example, the one you love the most might offer empathy in one moment or not in the next. Your husband, while writing a sermon on empathy, might fail to show you empathy when you need it most because you're interrupting him while writing his sermon. True story. <laughs> no one and no thing was designed to be your deepest attachment. Nothing on this earth was made to fulfill us in this way. No matter what it is, if you attach to something to meet that deepest psychological, spiritual, and physical need, it'll be about as useful as an empty bottle or a dirty blanket. It'll do the trick temporarily, but what it offers, the comfort, the security, the well-being, it'll be severely limited. And this is why we need to attach ourselves to Jesus. But the author has a deeper reason still. Look at verse 15. Here's what he writes. For, in other words, here's why. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. No one, uh, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Nobody wants a coach who's an expert on the sport, but only because he's read every book there is to know about football or baseball or cricket or Harry Potter. You know, no one wants a coach for Quidditch because it's a fake game. Uh, in the same way, we should not accept a God who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We should never accept a vision of a God who doesn't have empathy. But there are views out there, ideas about God in other religions and philosophies even, uh, that portray God as some sort of disinterested deity. You know, God is sometimes thought as the uninvolved, neglectful superintendent of the universe. He set things into motion, but is generally apathetic towards humanity. But as the author Kathleen Norris writes, she's great. The Christian religion asks us to put our trust not in ideas and certainly not in ideologies, but in a God who is vulnerable enough to become human and die and who desires to be present to us in our ordinary circumstances. This is not the picture of a God who's apathetic, but a God who's deeply sympathetic and empathetic. Jesus sympathizes with us, even in our weakness. Now, in general, we don't want people's sympathy because we think it's just a hop, skip, and jump away from pity. And who wants to be pitied? No one wants to be pitied. Pity the fool who's pitied. You know, so to be clear, sympathy is not pity. There's been some uh, uh, drift in its understanding, so to speak, that when people say, oh, I have sympathy for you, they think that you mean pity or disinterest, but that's not what sympathy means. Oxford definition of sympathy, and we're not going to allow any semantic drift in this room. This is what the word means. Power of sharing the feelings of another, especially in sorrow and trouble. Sympathy is not a bad thing. And the word used in our passage, is actually closer to our understanding of empathy as well. 
It describes deep emotional connection, an emotional connection similar to a mother and a child or between siblings. One scholar observed that the sympathy of Jesus is, is not simply the compassion of one who regards suffering from without. We don't need that. The sympathy of Jesus is the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. The sympathy of Jesus is one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. You see, Jesus is the place where sympathy and empathy perfectly meet. Jesus fully immersed himself in the human condition. He took on our perspective. He saw the world from our eyes. He felt our emotions. He laughed. He cried. He shed tears. He celebrated. He grieved. He suffered loss. He even faced death. Jesus can sympathize and even empathize with us because he knows what it is to become weak, what it is to become frail, to become one of us. You see, he entered into our state, which means he can look us in the eyes. No, he can look us into the heart and say, me too. I know. Now, the word used for weakness here, Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, has a strong kick to it, like black coffee in the morning. It's described as being a debilitating or incapacitated state. But if we keep this passage uh, rooted in the ongoing thought of the author of Hebrews, what he has in mind is not like the frailty or weakness of our bodies, though it could include that. What he has in mind is our moral weakness. He's saying, he's charging us indeed, that we are morally debilitated. We're morally incapacitated. What does he mean? Well, he's talking about our incessant drifting toward disobedience or obedience. The tendency to more readily embrace unbelief than belief. The way that we give in to temptation rather than enduring despite the cost. The way we fall short of our own ideals and expectations for our lives, let alone God's ideals and expectations for what is truly good. This is the kind of weakness the author has in mind. And it inhibits us. It cripples us. It makes us insecure. It makes us question ourselves. And it guts our confidence before God. Because if we have a moment of moral honesty, if we take stock of our moral weakness, we must admit we could never stand confidently in the presence of a holy God. How could God possibly be interested in us? How could he possibly want anything to do with me? How could he possibly love me when I've fallen so short of the simplest expectations? And keeping the context in mind still, let's remember that many of the people in this church receiving this letter are thinking about capitulating back to culture, giving up on Jesus, uh, going back to an easier life, a status quo life, a life that looks more like the culture around them, blends into the culture, shares the values of the culture without the significant costs of following Jesus. This is part and parcel of the moral weakness the author is speaking of. And this weakness, this temptation to drift away from God into unbelief or into disobedience or into hardness of heart, this weakness, Jesus felt it. Jesus really felt it. The allure of living for yourself in an easy, carefree existence, Jesus actually faced it. The only difference is that he didn't cave in. As the author says in verse 15, 
He felt our weakness, yet without sin. This does not mean that sin was not a possibility for Jesus. Instead, it means that at every opportunity, Jesus remained faithful. He stayed true to the Father's ways and plans. He didn't give in to any temptation, not even in the wilderness when facing Satan. There, he's tempted by things that we're tempted by all the time. False worship, the misuse of power, shortcuts to acclaim. False worship, the misuse of power, shortcuts to acclaim. We know these temptations. Jesus is facing them head on and he doesn't give in. But if this is who Jesus was, perfect, without sin, no shortcomings, how can he possibly know what it's like to be us? This is not our human experience. How can he sympathize for our weakness when he never failed? I'll speak for myself, not for you. It's usually my self-absorption that inhibits my empathy. It's my tendency to not want to be inconvenienced or sidetracked or feeling negative things that stops me from empathizing uh, with someone. It's my desire to get the task finished rather than the messiness of a person that stops me from showing empathy. It's my selfishness that gets in the way of empathy. Sin, which inhibits my ability to truly empathize, even the most empathetic person in this room, their empathy will be uh, tethered to their sin, tethered to their ability to be present in the moment. Jesus, being without sin, being perfect in love, means there's no barrier to his empathy. He can empathize with us in ways that we can't imagine or fathom. So his sinlessness, it doesn't disqualify him from being to empathize with our failures and sins, but makes him all the more able to empathize with us. He can empathize in us in incredible ways. There's no barrier. The beauty about Jesus is that even in his sinlessness, it doesn't lead to, to pride or ego. Jesus doesn't look down at us, you know, down some pompous divine nose and say, how could you? How could you give in to those weaknesses? It was so easy. No, instead he looks at us and he understands and he knows. He knows. He says, I see you. I see your struggle, the temptation, the trials, the pains. I've walked through the soil of this earth. I felt the pull toward entropy and decay as much as the draw towards sin and the abandonment of what is truly good. I feel your hurt. I feel it. I feel your confusion. And I'm with you. What sort of high priest is this? An altogether different kind which is why the author then draws a comparison between the sort of high priest Jesus is and the high priests that the ancient world were familiar with. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The author writes, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of other people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was. The point the author's making is that every high priest is merely a sinner interceding for sinners. No matter how great or noble that high priest may have been, their ministry would have been limited because 
they needed to be ministered to as well. Yes, they could offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation, but they also needed sacrifices for their own sins. They had to benefit from the system as well. Not so with Jesus, says the author of Hebrews. Not so with Jesus. Because he's sinless, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. He's unlike any of the earthly high priests, which is why the author says in verse 6, you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse 10. What the what? Like who? Melchizedek? Like who is this mysterious figure? Now, chapter 7, the whole chapter is about Melchizedek. So we'll deal with Melchizedek then. For now, it's only important to know that the author brings up Melchizedek to stress the point. In every way, in every way, Jesus is a better high priest than what was previously known because he's in an altogether different category. He's in the category of Melchizedek, not Aaron. You see, Jesus is not a sinner interceding for sinners. He's the sinless one interceding for sinners. And he's not busy preparing animal sacrifices for himself and others. Rather, Jesus is preparing himself as the sacrifice, as the gift, as the offering to God. His suffering will open up the path to the presence of God. And the author explains this. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, in other words, while he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, or could be translated his godly fear. With his feet firmly planted on earth, sharing in all of human experience, Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears. Fervent cries, one translation says. Jesus didn't have an emotionally detached, aloof human experience. He didn't. He accepted the whole package. The Gospel of John records that when his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. Luke wrote in his Gospel that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it because it didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize that he's the source of peace. But these aren't his most vivid experiences of loud crying and tears. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was sorrowful and troubled, distressed, and in anguish, he said, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke records that he was in so much anguish that as he prayed earnestly, sweat like drops of blood fell to the ground. He was wrestling with God with in prayer and tears and supplications, saying, if there's another way, but there was no other way. And when he accepted this, he found himself just a few hours later crying again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. Prayers for you, prayers for me. Jesus wept over the human experience of death, the pain of grief. He wept because Jerusalem failed to recognize their king. Jesus wept because of the suffering he endured for us. He wept as our sacrifice, experiencing the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, your beloved son? When we encounter Jesus, the author of Hebrews is really clear. We encounter God. And we discover that God is not somewhere else. He's not remote or detached or distant, but that God is among us, feeling what we feel aching 
the way we ache. Jesus has empathy for you. Jesus has so much empathy for you. He empathizes with your hurt and your pain and what you're going through. And he never lords his suffering over you, but takes his suffering and offers it to you as a comfort. Where is he then? That might be the question. Validly asked, if you're hurting, facing loss, suffering, where is he? Why doesn't he show me his empathy? He has. He put it on full display on the two crooked beams of the cross. But, you say, Jesus has not been through my suffering. How could he possibly understand? And in some respects, you're right. He hasn't been through your exact circumstances. Jesus may not have been through your exact suffering, but neither have you been through his suffering. A universal suffering. No one could experience the same darkness he experienced, the loss he experienced when he was rejected and killed on the cross. A suffering which opens up the soul of every person to him, which allows him to empathize with us in ways we can't even fathom. And it's Christ's real and painful experience of suffering that leads the author of Hebrews to write in verse 8, although he was a son, although he was the son of God, although he was the beloved son of God, although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect and became perfect. The word is telos, so we should be thinking about end or aim or purpose. Jesus came in to the world to fulfill a purpose and he made it perfect. He did it. And what was his purpose? To save us from sin, to save us from all that tarnishes what is good and beautiful about the world, to save us from everything that inhibits us from truly loving and empathizing with one another, to save us from the sin that so easily separates us from the love of God. This is why he came into the world and he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it perfectly, which is why the author says he became the source of eternal salvation. He became the source of eternal salvation because he perfectly suffered for us. And who's it for? Look at the end of the verse. For all who obey him. What? So our obedience is required to inherit salvation? Isn't the author already charging us that we're morally debilitated? That our disobedience is the problem? That we can't be faithful enough all the time? That we always drift into disbelief and unbelief and back and forth? That we sometimes do what God asks and other times not? Isn't that why we needed priests and all of their sacrifices to make way, a room to be in God's presence, to atone for our sins? Isn't that why we needed a high priest that went into the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for the sins, not just of himself, but the whole nation? And yes, we need a high priest. And Jesus has served us in an unparalleled way. So listen to me carefully here. Because Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, because Jesus is an entirely different category of priest, because Jesus has interceded for us with prayers and loud cries, because Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, because Jesus has opened up the possibility of eternal salvation for us. 
the author writes in chapter 4, verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Our obedience could never secure our salvation. That's why Jesus came. His obedience is what secured our salvation, not our own. His love is what drove him to take the initiative, not ours. Our part, our obedience, is to fix our eyes on him. It's to draw near to him, to remain with him, to hold fast to him. You know, the obedience Jesus asks of us, the obedience that is required of us, is to believe in him. It's to hold fast to our belief in him and to draw near to him each and every single day by following him wherever he may lead. So going back to our guiding question, why should we attach ourselves to Jesus? Why should we draw even closer to him as our great high priest? You will never, not in a million years, you will never find someone who knows you better, who always does what is best for you, who cares for you, who offers you support and compassion and understanding, someone who loves you like Jesus loves you. No one on this earth shows more compassion. No one offers more empathy. But Jesus offers something so much better than empathy. As beautiful as his empathy is, he offers something so much better. When we open ourselves up to him in faith, when we cling to him, he attaches himself to us. He establishes this deep emotional bond and he becomes ours. Have is the key word in this passage. Do you see it? We have a great high priest. We have one who is able to sympathize. He's ours. He's ours. He's attached to us so intimately that he shares his very life with us. His life becomes ours. All that is his becomes ours. Wherever he goes, we can go. Wherever he is, we can be. Do you know what that means? Previously, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and draw near to the throne, which was known as the mercy seat. Once a year. But now, this space is open to anyone who comes to Jesus at any time. You and I, ordinary people, can come to the throne of grace, the most intimate place of God's presence. But it's not a throne in some temple. It's the actual presence of God where Jesus is king. And previously, because of our moral weakness, our disobedience, our divided hearts, whatever you want to call it, we could never stand before God with confidence. We could never be secure before a holy God of the universe. But Jesus has attached himself to us. Weak and frail as we are, and he proudly declares, they're with me. They're with me. You see, because of Jesus' suffering, the presence of God is not a place of judgment. The presence of God is not a place of condemnation of our moral weakness or our unholiness. It's a place of grace. It's a place of mercy. A place where we can stand confidently because Jesus Christ is ours and we are his. And because of this, we have a profoundly new confidence. We're loved. We're cherished. We're secure. We're safe. We have comfort in him. And with this same confidence, we can now draw into the presence of God. We can draw near to this throne of grace to receive precisely what we need. And what does he offer from this throne of grace? Mercy and grace. Mercy, his unending, never-ending, can't run dry, renewed all the time, his unending, unending, unending mercy. 
You can't out sin Jesus. You can't outrun him. You can't be so broken or dirty that you're beyond his forgiveness or mercy. He offers mercy. But he also offers grace. That he did all of this for us as a gift. Not when we deserved it. Not when we were at our moral best, but when we were at our worst. He said, I still love you there. I still give my life for you there. I forgive your sins. But his grace is also empowerment. It's a grace that helps us in our time of need so that when we feel weak, when we feel frail, when we feel like we can't father, follow him any further, we can collapse and he says, my grace is sufficient for you here. I'll sit with you as long as you need. I'll stand with you when you're ready and I'll walk with you all the way to eternity's shores. This is the mercy and the grace we receive that we can confidently receive as long as we attach ourselves to Jesus and we're obedient to him in this. Here's the thing, you couldn't pry my bottle out of my mouth if you tried when I was a kid. Couldn't do it. But it was empty most of the time. It, it provided no sustenance, but I was so attached to it. I needed it for my security and my comfort and, and my well-being that I would never let it go. It wasn't work to keep it pried in my mouth. You see, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when you understand what Jesus has done for you, that he's done all of this for you as a gift, there's nothing you can do to earn it that he just is here. Come into my presence. Belong to me. Be a part of my family. Your obedience is holding fast to that. But why would you let go when you have your source of comfort and security and, and, and strength in him? You, you hold on to it. You don't let go. That's the gift of grace. That's the gift of mercy. And that's the gift that Jesus offers to every single one of us every single moment of every single day from the very presence of God. And that's why we need him and him alone to be our great high priest.